Welcome to the Who I Became podcast. I'm really pleased today to be joined by Paul Buckner, who is actually, Paul, you are the voice of Who I Became. Yes. Yes. That's <laughs> we're, we're great excitement. That was yes, and you must be embarrassed that when you hear your, you're actually on the <laughs> show and your voice is the intro to the show. Um, I guess, are you a bit embarrassed or do you say, hey, yeah, that's my voice? Well, it was a fun project. Usually I am behind the camera and editing, and this was actually my voice. And I, you know, just, I love the idea of having it on your show. And normally when I listen to your show, I'm listening to somebody like Jimmy Meeks or, or Dave Grossman, someone of, of import, and I'm all prepared to learn something. And then I hear my voice and it does startle me for a split second. Well, I guess one of the questions is, is it a face for radio? Is that why you're behind the scenes guy? Uh, it's probably a face for radio. I, I think it's maybe a face only my mother could love, but anyway. Well, absolutely not. No, yeah. you're a, you're a, um, you have a face for radio and a face for TV, Paul. So, you know, we'll, you'll, you'll get there. You'll get there. But, you know, thank you for joining me. And one of the interesting things that, well, why I want to talk to you, Paul, is um, obviously, you know, you're a videographer and you work in um, IT, um, but you're also the co-host of one of the largest church safety groups on Facebook, known as the Church Safety Guys. And you have, you know, thousands of, of viewers and, and every Sunday evening you do a live um, sort of podcast of which I've been blessed that you've allowed me to, to, to come along onto the, onto the show. But maybe tell us how that, how I got started. So James and I, independently of each other, started two different groups. Mine was geared towards my local area for like alerts in the case of emergency. I've got a background of about 12 years in church safety, and it's about the same for him. And we had started them with different reasons. I had started sharing some of my experiences because I, I didn't want people to go through what I had gone through, uh, which was learning from scratch. And some of it was scary how we had to learn the hard way. I met James when he had started a group called Church Safety and Security, and that's really still the bread and butter of what we do. And so I started posting in there with his permission, and it became a friendship, which is ironic because we've still never met in person, almost four years in. And we got closer and closer, and then he was finally like, hey, I want you to help me administrate the group. And then it became uh, Facebook Lives, and we started interviewing folks. And uh, God has just opened this door now. Even, even more is coming. So, yeah, it's, it's been a journey. Yeah, and I know. I mean, you've interviewed some very interesting people. You know, Frank Pomeroy, the pastor of the Sutherland Springs um, yep. Church shooting. And, you know, I mean, every Sunday night, you know, you have to put this production um, together. And it's interesting how social media and sort of podcasts have allowed people like you um, to sort of become mini celebrities. You know, you sort of say you and James's names and the church saved the guys. I can see you're smiling. You're very humble, but, it, but it's true. You know, that, that sort of uh, maybe amateur journalism, whatever you might choose to, to call it. But, you know, you dedicate a lot of time and energy to help educating um, churches. You know, predominantly your listeners are those that are volunteers in safety right. and security. So, so where did that come from? Why, why the desire to give up so much of your time to help others in church safety? Well, the immediate was so much, again, of what we had learned, James and I both, uh, similar similar circumstances, was we had to learn things the hard way. And there was no, there was no uh, rule book. There was no guide. And, and so it was really a, a desire to help people not fall into some of the same traps that we had and help shorten the learning curve. When, when James and I started, YouTube had one or two church safety videos, and there weren't very many books. And so it, it was frightening, really. We were trying to fly an aircraft with no manual. And then... The thing that has become, I guess, I guess why it's so passionate for me is um, my background. I mean, I grew up, I grew up in an environment where I had an older sister that had uh, uh, 
physical difficulties. She was very severely handicapped. And I, some of my earliest memories are being a caregiver, helping my sister. And, uh, you know, and then, um, I wasn't allowed directly to raise my son due to a divorce. It was, it was one of those things where I had a, a great passion to raise my son correctly, albeit weekends and, and, and one night a week. And that's a pull that plays into it. Um, losing my dad at a relatively young age, I was 26 and he was in his mid fifties and realizing that there are people that need mentored people that need, uh, you know, I, I would give my left arm to, to be able to talk to him every day and ask him questions. So I think a lot of it came from that sort of a, a need. And I have a tendency, it spills over to other aspects of my life, but I have a tendency to adopt people uh, as, as brothers, because I grew up with all sisters, four sisters and no brothers. And I have friends who will say to me, well, Paul, I'm closer to you than I am my own blood, literally blood brother. And I think all of that, if you, if you bring that together under the surface, that the pain, the background, the longing, the things that God uses, um, has has helped to make me passionate about things and and definitely strong empathy and again i just don't want people to go through what i went through the hard way yeah and you know your volunteerism doesn't really just stop around church safety i also no. know that you are a police chaplain as well with your local police department i mean how, how did you get into being a, become a, a police chaplain yeah that was a, that was kind of like meeting james that was me stumbling into something that god wanted me to do and it was something that happened just naturally I, there was some legislation that passed in my state uh, that was very pro-gun, and I'm very pro-gun, and I'm also pro-law enforcement, and I had met a gentleman who was basically the chief of police of his town, and in the course of our conversation, we decided to hold a rally at his restaurant. I probably 150, 200 people showed up, and it was private citizens and law enforcement at the same time in the same place, uh, and and every everybody was very positive. Got to know him, discovered his department was broke, half the equipment in his car was duct taped together, and I, I admired his drive because he was like, my guys and gals get the best. I take the, the crumbs, the leftovers, and I make do. And I got a big mouth and I know people. I started beating the drum. We got them all kinds of equipment. And, and we joke now that he has stepped down from that position that we had them up to a functional department. And I mean, I could I could fill a podcast with just what God did for that department. And then all of a sudden, people started calling from other departments going, <clears throat> would, you, would you like to ride with us? And it was, it was filling a need. And of course, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And all of a sudden, somebody turned to me one day, several years in, I was doing this thing I call Southwest Missouri Adopt-A-Cop. And they were like, well, you're a police chaplain. And I was like, no, I'm not. And, and I was like, yes, I am. And so I'm a civilian police chaplain and I, I it's official with one department I from what I can tell it's about to become official with two and then there's probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 40 officers that would consider me their chaplain so yeah that was one of those things that God did that just I got brought into it by surprise yeah and you know you do this is a volunteer Correct. You, know, you don't have too much of a backbone as you mentioned you know, you're a, a, a strong strong Christian but you must have seen some horrific things in your time or been told about some horrific um, things that police officers need to either get off their chest or, or just sort of um, need some support in that. So how do you um, deal with some of the things that you get told or some of the things that you see? Well, you rely on God. Um, at 100 miles an hour, I'll hit three quick scenarios. Um, I climbed in a, a car with a police officer one night that needed to talk, needed to vent, and he had witnessed the death of, of two different girls at two different times in his career and was able to give him some peace. And, and I, I literally, this is all done in weakness. I'm human. I'm frail. I need the Holy Spirit. I need God. And we're going down the road, and he's talking about holding a, a small child as she dies. And 
I'm like, I'd like to phone a friend. Lord, I need, I need your words here. And I, at that moment, I realized there were things I could say to him. And so very quickly, things like, um, you understand your, your calling isn't medical. You're not a doctor. You're not a nurse. You're not an EMT. They were coming. The EMTs, the paramedics were coming. You couldn't change that, but you were there as a Christian. He, he's a believer. And you were praying with her and talking to her as she left this world. And that gave him, that gave him peace. And I said, the word of God says to be absent from the bodies, to be present with God. We're told we are escorted from this earth, you know, from, from life, you know, as we die to heaven by angels. And it, it really hit him. And I said, God put you there to be with this girl. And, and I could tell you a dozen stories like that all the way over to God has put me in circumstances to either defend an officer physically or in, in one situation where a man had brutalized a woman, tortured her, held her captive. I was with the officer on the call. Um, he goes charging into the building when he realized what was going on and gives me one of these to come in with him. Small departments, no backup. And the man had basically held this woman captive for days, beaten and brutalized her, and then thrown boiling water on her back, third degree burns. And I saw the look in his eyes and he saw the look in mine. And there was this moment of mutual accountability. There was this moment of this woman needs help and she got it. And this man needs arrested and, go, and to go to prison. And that's that's happened. And so I have been able to kind of run the gambit. And I, I just try to I'm like, hey, I'm going to show up in weakness. God, use me. And so how do you you obviously give away a lot when you're being this um, police chaplain, but what, what do you get out of being a police chaplain? How, how do you feel? feel? The, I, I'm this kind of guy that if, if I get to the top of the mountain, the, the view doesn't have to be lonely from the top if I bring if I bring you with me. And so I'm one of these guys that a lot of these guys are like my little brothers and law enforcement in my area is dominated by guys. There's very few women in these small departments. And um, so they're like my little brothers and they'll ask me life advice, marital advice, buying a home advice. And I've got a handful of these guys that have really listened. And it's hard when you're young, when you're 20, 25 years old, it's really hard to listen because you're very headstrong. You think you know it all. And I've had officers that I've watched them succeed, uh, level up, go, in, go into different careers. Um, I, or, or even within their own um, their own career path, figure out the thing that can set them apart for advancement. And so if I can help them to train, if I can help them to take a course, if I can recommend them for something, and then I get I get the success feeling almost like almost like watching your kids succeed. I get the success feeling of going, you made it, you succeeded, you did this thing. And uh, that I find incredibly rewarding. Yeah, and I know, uh, one of the interesting things about you, Paul, you know, you've got a quite a similar background um, to me that we both came from sort of uh, not very affluent um, families. Um, I know that you sort of really say that you were sort of raised um, in poverty, but, you know, uh, you stand now that you're a, a police chaplain. You know, you're a co-host on one of the largest church safety groups on Facebook. You, you know, you've got a, an IT company. You know, you've you've achieved great success, but it didn't always, your journey didn't start there. You know, there, there no. were, were a lot of times when your your family were very, very poor. I mean, how did that shape your, your sort of character? Uh, well, to, to, to give a little bit of a background on how, how poor we were, I, I joke, and you've heard me say this, I joke that we were so poor we couldn't afford the OR. We was Poe. We was Poe white folk. Um, I, came, I came from a county that I think now the average household income is $19,000 um, per, per person. And uh, it's not a lot of money. And I've done a whole lot better than that. But um, I came from a family that I would have been the fourth generation poverty. Uh, my dad didn't graduate high school. 
and uh, and I was raised. It was a single income household, and with and actually, I don't think we've actually talked about this, but with my sister being handicapped, my mom was a full time caregiver, so she wasn't working outside the home. There were things she did that helped, but my dad was the full in, uh, full uh, time income earner, and so uh, there were many times that that the that the fare upon the table was quite quite basic and spare. I remember we've talked about, uh, I've eaten beans for an entire week. I think you mentioned potatoes. Um, I've eaten very, very basic. Um, and, and I, I don't think I had a steak until I was an adult, until I was a, a full grown adult. So I grew up in a 24 foot square cabin, the size of my garage. Um, I grew up in a home that, uh, I heard the, the wind whistle through the walls at times, the chinking in the very real cabin walls. And, um, uh, uh, for instance, we didn't have air conditioning in the house until I was close. I don't. I think I was close to ten, and we didn't have running water in the house until I was around seven or eight. So, a lot of the things that people consider extremely, they consider them needs or necessities. We grew up without, and we had to level our way up to them. And so, you know, I helped. I helped haul water to make the washing machine function because there was a, there was a spring house about I don't know about sixty sixty I don't know, seventy feet from the house. And I remember popping the lids off of plastic jugs with my with my thumbs being six, seven, eight years old and reaching over the top of the washing machine to dump the water in. Uh, and, and you have to do that to fill the washer and for the rinse cycle. And there were many things like that. They make you more resilient. It, you know, you you learn to do with less. And I think you tend to appreciate the things that you end up getting, earning, benefiting from more. So uh, somewhere in there is the genesis of where I came from. Very humble beginnings. Yeah, and I know the, um, you know, you mentioned the county where you live has a sort of an average income of 19,000. So yeah. I imagine maybe there was a, a lot of families or similar families to you, but were there families that were more affluent that perhaps you compared your, yourself to? I mean, did you look at what others had from an early age and think, I, I want to I want to be them, I want that success, I want the riches? How, how did it shape you as you're growing up, maybe in your teens? I was blessed to have parents that knew that we had humble beginnings, but they always taught us that you can achieve anything you want. And my parents always steered me towards people who had a, a faith in God, a very strong Christian faith. And my dad had a peer group, uh, probably because of his, his carpentry skill sets. We were very poor, but people of a much of a much higher financial uh, uh, affluence oftentimes considered my dad a peer. And so I got to I got to listen to godly men and women who had means. And I, I always wondered what they had. Uh, I don't know if it was a jealousy. I don't think it ever became a jealousy. I always wanted. I always wanted to succeed alongside them. Yeah, and I know that you, as um, somewhere in your teens, or maybe it was before then, you were diagnosed with dyslexia. Yeah. And actually, you know, from being a, a poor family in poverty, you were taken out of a school system. You, you were homeschooled by your right. by your mother because. Uh, you know, either the school districts had said that this one's just just a wrong one. He, you know, he's just no good. He's slowing the rest of the class down. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of emotions that must get stirred up by that. But your um, your mother was your teacher, but you know, she didn't give up on you. I mean, maybe tell no. us a bit about um, you know, how that came about, how you learned, because you now have a passion for reading. I do well, and I owe an incredible debt to my mom. I I don't think I can ever fully express what I owe my parents, and and this aspect of it is my mom. Um, she came from a family background with dyslexia that was undiagnosed. They didn't know what it was back then. And when I was in first grade, uh, the, the local public school district and the local parochial schools went, 
we don't have anything. We have a remedial reading program, um, and basically your son's stupid. And they didn't put it in so many words, but that's what I heard. And so I really struggled with a feeling of, of being stupid um, when I was, was quite young, first grade, second grade. And my, my mom is very stubborn in a very good way. And I owe her this debt because she, she made sure that from first grade to third grade, I didn't just learn to read. She had me actually reading at an adult level. I mean, you talk about like somebody giving you rocket fuel to get to your, to your goals and dreams. And she taught me how to learn. And I actually generally can learn faster um, on my own than I can actually learn within a curriculum um, uh, because I can dissect the curriculum quickly. And so my mom took it upon herself to homeschool us. I was homeschooled from second grade through finishing high school. And when I went to college and I was one of the first, if not the first in my in my direct family to go to college. And the, the irony was I had college professors going, did you transfer from another school? I mean, they were alarmed at the education I had received. So my mom took something that was very humble and turned it into an amazing opportunity. And I, I cannot speak to how much I owe her. Yeah. And it's interesting how we all have these different events that sort of shape our background. And, you know, on another given day, the, the story could be so different, you know, oh, you're making that decision to sort of, you know, to pull you out of school and homeschool you. Some mm -hmm. parents might have said of a generation, I mean, I, I know you're 42 years old, I'm not going to embarrass you by saying your age, but of that generation going back in time, someone might have said, well, well maybe my son is just dumb or, or just doesn't know. And okay, just push through. So I mean, that was uh, that was great courage of your your mum to remove you from the school and, and to educate yeah. you herself, knowing that, yeah. that there's more there's more to this. Because dyslexia, when me and you were growing up, wasn't that big a thing, and we're not going back that many years. No, no, and there's actually an anecdote to that. They're proving now that people who have dyslexia they actually have high problem solving skills. And they are often extremely creative and they often have a near genius IQ, which I actually test just under genius. So the irony is I thought I was incredibly It's okay stupid. to brag every now and again, Paul, okay? Right. Well, and, I'm and in the presence of a genius. This. I like it. <laughs> you heard me say this, that uh, your IQ is is useless unless you do something with it. And True. so to be, to be told that you have a near genius IQ is useless if you have no motivation. And so um, it's like, it's like, it's like a pile of firewood with no, with no fire. And, uh, it's always fun when your phone goes off and you thought you had it silenced. Um, the interesting of a professional pool, right? Right. The interesting thing for me is um, that uh, in an era when people thought that that dyslexia was synonymous with stupidity, or that that you were there was almost like a mental retardation was there was like a, a stigma, um, and and also in an era when to be homeschooled, people were like, "Oh my, oh my word, is is that legal?" Um, you know, so my mom really took a challenge upon herself that that most people back then didn't do. And now people tend to they tend to almost apologize to you and go, oh, I, I wish my wife and I had the time and the means to homeschool. And my parents did that, bought the books, set up everything on a single income household. There were so many things that they passed on. We didn't have cable television. You know, we didn't have we there were so many things they focused on to make sure that we got a quality education. And it set me far ahead in life. So, yes, I owe, I owe both my parents an incredible debt. Yeah, and I know there's a, a very interesting story about, you know, um, and maybe I should say that you have an IT company now and you do videography, um, but you didn't always take that path. And actually your dad recognized and saw something in you. And yeah. I know that you were, you know, your dad would do everything to, to make ends meet and whether, whether that's chopping down wood or doing home repairs. Uh, and one day that you're actually at a woman's house doing some renovations and, and there was a, a story there. So maybe share with us about 
your dad coming to you and saying, son, I think you can do, you can do. Yeah. My parents taught me a lot about how to live and, and faith. And one of the things that was interesting, it was actually at a, um, um, you actually remembered a, an alarming number of details from that story. Um, I was, uh, it was a city hall. Uh, so it was a little office and they, they had one computer in there. And this is, I think would have been in the early, early nineties. And back then computers were made of magic and you didn't touch them because they might stop working. And so this lady needed because of the remodel that my dad was doing in the office and I was helping him, you know, I was kind of the gopher, the carpenter's assistant and apprentice or whatever. And so I was helping him that summer. And, uh, as I'm working alongside my dad, she's like, well, we're gonna have to move this computer across the room, but I've got to call our IT guy and it takes him forever to get here. And there's one guy in the whole county. And so as she was saying this, I was like, well, I can do it. And she ended up letting me try, which is a miracle. And I took it across the room, put everything back together, which for me was no big deal. I mean, I grew up with hand-me-down everything's. It's and I plug in cables. Yeah, exactly. But to her, it was, it was, ah, and but so. You are, you are a near genius, Paul. So maybe that's why, <laughs> that's why she let you do it. Well, so in result of all this, um, I put I put all the magic cables back where they belonged, and, and magically it worked. And she was completely flummoxed. She she went through all the things she did with her computer. It printed, it did everything, and she turned to my dad and she said, "There's one guy in the entire county that can do this, and he charges a lot of money. Your son can do this, and he's a boy." And so my dad, who was not like me, my dad was not a talker. I could talk to a post. My dad, if he said something, he had probably thought about it for a while. Um, he was he was very introspective and what have you, and, and a much more quiet man. And he turned to me and said, "You know, I think I think that you could pursue a career in IT. I think there might be more for you over here. This seems to be a place God has blessed you." And I think a lot of times as fathers, we might miss those opportunities to encourage our kids. So I tried to make that part of who I am. And so uh, I really got to thinking about it. I already liked it as a hobby. I already liked it as a kid. And it began to make me think differently. So at 18, I began to pursue it as a career path. Yeah. And um, I'm trying to think of the best way to phrase this. So, but when you're um, yeah, my sons are six and nine, so I'm nowhere near this stage. But when you, for every parent, I want my sons to far eclipse any success that the world perceives that I have. Um, but when you're stood there with your dad and your dad is really realizing that my son can do more than me. Um, was there any moment when you sort of, you look at it, your dad thinking, you know, I'm just eclipsing where my dad is or there's a better life for me. I mean, you mentioned at that point, you're living in a 24 foot cabin with... Uh, you know, five people and, you know, your mum and dad are struggling to make ends meet, but there's this bigger world out there. I mean, you know, were, were you taking that in? Were you absorbing what your dad was really saying to you? What Because what, what he was really saying was, some, there's a better life than what I can give you. I mm -hmm. mean, maybe, did you ever reflect on that? And do you think your dad ever reflected, reflected on that? You know, I don't know what his thoughts were. I know that both of my parents always encouraged us um, that if you want college, go for college. Um, we were really taught that we could self-educate. Um, we were literally taught you can change your stars. You can you can do whatever you set your mind to. And I think one of the neatest things about my parents was they always talked about, uh, especially my mom, talked about people who were self-made men and women. And so, I, you know, like Abraham Lincoln or or Edison or, or different people that had really come up from nothing. And you look at like Einstein was thought to be like mentally retarded. So was Edison. And they were very brilliant people. And so they always they always um, reinforced that and kind of they, they grew us in a way like the way you would grow a plant quite deliberately. They were they weren't raising children. They were raising adults. And they always encouraged us. And, you know, you got we got we got scolded when we needed it. We got punished when we needed it. We got the hugs when we needed it. And they definitely encouraged us. 
um, to to go for our dreams. So if I wanted to build homes, my dad was there. If you want to build homes, I'll teach you everything I know. If it doesn't interest you, I don't expect you to follow in my footsteps. Yeah, and that's a, a proud thing for a parent to say. And I know that, you know, albeit you're raised in poverty, you know, you, you've reached um, success now. It wasn't always that simple in how other people perceived you. And I know there's a particular story about you and your dad working at a wealthy man's house. Uh, and this man, I mean, even when I hear it back, it, it makes you smile just because it is just shocking and horrifying. But, you know, you are uh -huh. 13, 14 years old and you're around a, a man's house. Your dad's doing some, some renovations. And yeah. the man says, you know what, you know, your, your dad... Uh, never finished school and you're poor and no one's ever gonna like you you know you're never gonna find a wife you're never gonna go to college and for whatever reason this man was just pushing you down and pushing Very you down so. for, for someone that must have already had a bit of a complex um in any case i mean tell us a bit more about that story about how you were feeling when this stranger was saying that paul you're worthless and that's basically what he told me um yeah i had seen Thank, thank God I had seen people that had money and had means and were very Christ-like because it might have jaded me against against people with that had wealth and means, period. And my dad built several homes for the guy. My dad did actually quite a bit of work uh, of remodel and additions and things. So we, I was around this guy a fair amount. And I don't think my dad ever really realized some of the things the man said to me, um, uh, some of which were just truly, I mean, it was, it was verbal abuse. And so to set the stage, I still thought I was kind of dumb and I was still struggling coming out of that and, uh, and, and kind of had a chip on my shoulder as it were. Well, then this guy comes along at an age when, um, as you would say, I was, I was starting to take an interest in gals. You know, I was, I was starting to, to eye the, the fairer sex and go, hmm. And he, he comes along and goes, you're homeschooled, um, you're, you're fourth generation poverty. Again, like you said, your dad came, you know, your dad came from nothing. He didn't graduate high school, which, by the way, both of my parents encouraged us not only to finish high school, but to finish strong and to consider college if we wanted it. And so he was, he literally verbally attacked me and tried to tear me down and actually succeeded. Um, and, and literally told me no woman would ever want to marry me. It would be impossible for me to get married. And I spent a lot of sleepless nights really wrestling with who God said I was, who my parents said I was and who this guy said I was. And it really, it didn't put me in a good place at times. And I, I struggled a lot with forgiveness with him. And in some ways, part of my drive then was unhealthy because it was like, oh yeah, I'll prove you wrong. You know, you say I can't, I will, I will, I'll go 10 times harder because you say I can't. Yeah. And I think, do you believe or do you feel that that man had such an impact in your life that he was, by his negativity, he was also a driving factor for you to say, well, I'm going to, I'm going to break out of this mold. I'm, I'm going to do better than what I am. It was, um, I was already going to fight hard. Uh, but he definitely made me fight harder. Um, I would like to think I would have still been in a lot of the similar circumstances. Whatever Satan intends for evil, God in terms for, intends for good. He'll turn it to the good. Um, I know that I drove myself to an, un, an unhealthy level at times to, to prove to myself that he was wrong. And it was never, by the grace of God, because of my parents, it was never a, I'm going to succeed by running you over. That never happened. But I think that I did push myself unfairly too hard at times, and, and, and for, especially in my teens. Um, I, I think I told you this once. I used to win Jeopardy as a kid, sitting there doing my homework in the living room. My mom would turn on the three stations we got with our antenna. And I would win the adult version of Jeopardy. And in the margins of my homework, I would sit there and wager and I would win. And well, that's I what a genius does, Paul. You said you're right. a genius. So yeah. 
Well, and, and I, I think that I think because of the chip on my shoulder, I never realized that God had made me intelligent. Um, and so it really it it wasn't a healthy place for me to be. But I was I was doing things that I wish I could go back to myself and say, hey, hey, cool your jets a little bit. It's OK. You got this because I was I was driven to an unhealthy level and I would sit. I would literally be able to sit at a, a, a group of friends would be playing a um, a. Uh, Oh, I can't think what they're called. It's, type, it's a type of game. And uh, uh, and they would quiz each other with these questions. It was trivia. They'd play these trivia games. And I would I would win. I would just sit there just because of what I remembered. And so I think I drove myself way too hard because of what he said. Um, and I would probably, I think I would probably have attained 80% of where I am today, probably without him. But, but he was still as an influence, yeah. And interesting though, I mean, as... Luck or fate um, would have it. Uh, Fifteen years later, I know that you bumped into this um, guy into in, in a diner, and yeah. the story doesn't end there. I mean, so <laughs> this man puts you down. Yeah. You know, you, you're in, in a, a poor family. You, you know, you achieve greatness. You go to college. Uh, you work for a Fortune 500 company. You've got your own IT company. Um, you know, you're doing other things. You know, you've really got the success. Um, that you'd sort of crave, but then you bump into this man again. So maybe tell us what happened when you ran into him at a diner. <laughs> that was quite a lesson because God taught me several things in it. Um, so I, I'm sitting in this diner, and to set the stage for this, it, it was kind of an odd place. It's, it's defunct now, it's gone, but you, you sat communally at these tables. It would freak people out right now with COVID, but you sat communally at these tables. They were dining room tables that had been brought in. It was a very, very simple mom and pop operation. And so I'm sitting here, and the expectation was when people came in, they would just ask if they could join your table. And so I see him come in the door, and I, I really was struggling with forgiveness with this guy. He, I mean, he had... Uh, for a period of years, every opportunity he got, he had hurt me uh, verbally. And so he comes in and there's no other place to sit. And he walks up and he says, um, do you mind if I sit here? And I'm thinking, no, I, or yes, I do mind. But I said, it's a free country. So he sits down and and to, to give you a little background on this guy, his girlfriend has probably been with him for 35 years and never married him. And I, I wonder yeah, why. Right. He sounded and, such uh, a nice gentleman. He's such a sweetheart. And so um, he sits down and I have a book and, you know, a sandwich, soup and sandwich, whatever I'm eating. And he begins to talk and he says, I owe you an apology. And I'm like, and I mean, completely floored me because I'm looking at this guy thinking, OK, this is an ambush. What, what's going on? And he's and because this was not I would have lost a serious bet on what was going to come out of it was his a reality TV show. Someone's right first out, you know. Yeah, I'm waiting for the other shoe to drop. And he says, I have followed your career with interest, which fascinates me because social media was not what it is today. You couldn't just go look on LinkedIn. And he goes, he's like, you've worked for this company. You've, you've worked for this company. You've owned your own business. You've married a, a nurse. She's a college educated nurse. And of course, you know, I, I've been married almost 17 years now to my wife. I think she's gorgeous. So, you know, I'm thinking, yeah, I, I have done some of these things. And as he's telling me this, he says, you know, you've got a kid, you've got a successful business. You, you far exceeded whatever I thought was going to happen with you. I owe you an apology. I was wrong about you. And I was sitting there like, what do I say to that? And you got to figure this guy was probably about 80 years old when he, when he was saying this and he's still alive. Last I knew we still live in the same area and I still bump into him from time to time. And I was completely flummoxed. I was, I was, whoa, you know? Yeah. And so I realized, of course, the Christian thing to do is to forgive. And I realized how much forgiveness I wasn't giving him, how much I was struggling. And I said, you know, I accept your apology. Thank you. 
and the, the, the tragic thing was God also showed me that outside of Christ, a lot of people are not going to change. So in the very next breath, I reach over to pick up a, a can of soda, Dr. Pepper, Coke, whatever it was. And as I go to take a drink, uh, this man who was a, was a doctor and, and very well to do goes, you know, that's what killed your father. Right. And that isn't even remotely what killed my dad. And I realized I, I've got to go. I've got to get out of here. But it, but the Lord showed me in that moment that outside of Christ, this guy's not going to change. And and maybe to a degree, why did I let him have that big of an impact in my life? So yeah, and maybe I mean I, I do like the, the the Coke story or whatever it was. As in, you know, that's why your your dad died. I mean, this guy just couldn't let it go. And, and no, we do meet people like that. But it's interesting in who you became years later that you could still let that go i mean there's some people would have either just rolled up the sleeves and you know would have not the guy for six or you know thrown the coke in his face i don't even know what i would have done i don't know if i'm going to confess on this show what i would have done right um but you know it, it would have been hard but maybe that's you know you've been so used to sort of humbling yourself and 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 working hard to get there but i know you'd you'd actually had a a more positive encounter with another millionaire yeah. um, who sort of really gave some words of wisdom, which still you live by to this day. So maybe share that positive story. Well, and to go back before I go forward, I have been blessed to sit in the homes of people um, and fix computers for people that are are in, in the 1% of our nation. And I've, I've been in gated communities. I've been in the homes of several millionaires. And I've been blessed to get life advice, probably more so than I've even, I'm even conscious of. But probably the biggest one was at 22 years old, I think it was. I'm, I'm an IT guy. I'm young. I'm sitting in this guy's house. I'm fixing his computer. And he was probably more psychoanalyzing me than I realized. He's a retirement age guy, very wealthy. And as I'm sitting there, he, he was kind of quizzing me on things. And it was actually before I had married my wife. And he says, he says, um, do you mind if I would give you some advice? And I'm thinking, when you're 22, it's hard to teach you anything. But I'm listening. I'm thinking from a millionaire? Uh, sure. Sure. Yeah. Let's take yeah, that. Absolutely. I'll, I'll take some notes. And so he says, um, he says, I, I, and I forget what his title was, but he was part of a Fortune 500 company. And he's like, I, uh, I have achieved wealth. I mean, the, all of the trappings of wealth, everything, I, you know, I've gained the whole world, basically. And he says, I, I shaped my industry. There are people today that still do things the way I taught them. I, I've changed an industry. He said, but I would give it all back, all the millions, the house, I've traveled the world. I would give it all back. And I'm, I'm at 22 years old. I'm kind of like, um, okay, you know, and, and looking around this gorgeous house. And he says, I would give it all back if my children would talk to me, if they would call me. Um, he said, are you familiar with the cats in the cradle? And I'm like, yeah, I, I'm very familiar with that song. He said, I am the epitome of that song. I lived it. And he said, my wife left me. I, I, I'm going to spend my golden years, my words, not his, without my family. And I realized I've, and again, my words, not his, I've gained the whole world, but again, I've lost my family. And that really hit me because I had let that man, the doctor that had ridiculed me and told me I was worthless, you know, I had let him become an unhealthy drive in my life. And I think that was a, I talk about two degree shifts in life where you realize that you're just a hair off the compass reading, you know, and I realized I needed to prioritize family. And I didn't, I mean, I had a small son, my, my first wife had left and uh, un, unrelated to my drive or anything, but I was, I was thinking towards the future and realizing if I have a chance to do this, I want to do it right. And so he had told me, he said, make sure that when you go home, you hang it up and you're home. You, you, you mentally shift and you go in the door 
and you're with your wife, you're with your kids, you're focused on them. And I have turned down really lucrative offers to move or to go overseas to, to be part of projects that, I mean, the money was great. Um, money is not my God. Um, and you know, it's God and then it's my family and then money comes in probably about fourth place for me after volunteering. So yeah, that man, uh, God rest his soul. He's probably passed on now. I hope he, I hope he knows the Lord. Um, I don't remember his name, which is ironic, but he, he literally bumped me in a very positive direction. And I, I remember walking and thinking completely floored, just feeling empty and really reevaluating myself after that going, wow, I don't want to end up there. Yeah, and isn't it interesting that, you know, you grew up um, in a poor family and I think you said that the log cabin was 24 foot long and it didn't even have sort of internal walls. There were sort of right. like... Um, partitions. Yeah, partitions in there, you know, so privacy was, was limited. Uh, and you might have dreamed or wanted to aspire to where this man was. Absolutely. And, and here you are at 22 years old, you're meeting someone, a, a real millionaire, and it's like, amazing, this is where I want to be. And then mm -hmm. that moment hits you again where this person's saying, well, actually, I don't want that. I want perhaps where you are is to have that family, to have that, that love. And it's, um, it's amazing. But that's what I really like about your sort of rags to riches story, Paul, if you like, but you know, you're, you're the person that people said you might not amount to anything. People are putting you down, you know, you've risen up, but you've always tr stayed true to what that millionaire told you, that, it, that it, there's more, more to, more to life than having that money. Amen. So, so Paul, if you um, sort of look at your life, what's the one thing that you would say is the sort of key driver or the key significant moment that sort of makes you the man that you are today? I mean, you're a leader, you know, you do volunteerism, you're a police chaplain, you know, you've got your, your business, you've, you've, you've achieved great stuff and you'll continue to achieve great stuff, I'm sure. But what's the one thing that you would account that success to? Well, I don't know if there's one moment, but there's probably 5,000 moments with my parents because, and, and I'll single one out for you in here in a moment. I shared it with you the other day and it resonated with you. Um, I am blessed that I came from a family that believed deeply in God. And, and the background of this is I shouldn't have because uh, my mom had been raised in a family where there had been abuse between the parents. Her mom was extremely violent. And later in life, her dad became a Christian. I never met the man that would get so angry from being hit multiple times that he would retaliate. And my mom had had traumatic events in her childhood related to that. And so my mom had gone through awful things. And as a kid, you hear these stories and you're like, okay, you know, okay. And you, as an adult, you look back and go, wow. When, when you look at your parent as a person, not just your parent figure. And then my dad had been raised in an environment where it was unbelievably strict and, and church was a set of rules and, and they didn't even really attend. And so you, you didn't dance and you didn't, you didn't, uh, you didn't uh, gamble and you didn't do these things. And that was God, that was, that was church. And so my dad was very against church going into his marriage with my mom. And so my, my mom and my dad's marriage should have been gasoline and a road flare. It should have been a recipe for disaster. And I never met those parents because, and not that they were evil or vile or awful people, they were, they were broken people like we all are. And they overcame things through Christ. And so if, if, there's, if there's a crucial moment that I owe 
who I am today to, it's the salvation of my mother followed by the salvation of my father. Because my mom became a believer in a, in a little church, in a, in a little town, and, uh, you know, halfway across the state. And, and then my dad was kind of watching my mom and realizing that she was changing in good ways. And he went to church and, and as I understand the story, practically gave his life to the Lord right as he walked in the door. And so they began. And, and by the way, you asked me about a life of service. My parents went into a Christian service camp, think a like the, the summer camps the kids go to. And they ran it full time. I was actually born there on that property. And and so I owe an incredible debt to my parents because them falling in love with God, they were completely changed new creations in Christ. But I'm getting goosebumps by the time I was even born. I mean, by the time I was on the scene and then I was raised in that home, um, regardless of the poverty, we were wealthy spiritually. And you asked about a singular moment. I don't know that there was a singular moment, but there's a moment that stands out to me where I, I should have been in bed and I should have been asleep. And I was peeking out of this little door and I was looking at my parents and they had, and my mom doesn't remember this. I, I shared this with her not long ago and she doesn't remember this story, but I, I uh, was peeking out and they were talking about how they had paid the bills for the month. And um, they counted the money they had between my dad's pockets and his wallet and my mom's purse. And I believe it was like $2.36 or $2.39. And they stopped and they prayed and they thanked God for his provision because there was food on the table and the lights were still on and the, the property payment had been paid. I grew up in a home where faith was a very real thing. We didn't practice it only on Sundays. And I saw my parents do things and God answer it and God bless it so many times that I grew up never doubting that God existed. And if I, I cannot express how much I owe that debt of gratitude to my parents, because had they been Sunday morning only Christians, I wouldn't be where I am today. Yeah. And I think, you know, re removing the faith aspect from that, there is a very humbling ending to that story when you say yeah. that your your parents are counting out with two dollars 36 um cents you know we we all me myself we all have our own internal battles as to where we perceive our wealth and treasure um but when you hear something like that i mean that that's you know i got goosebumps hearing you, you say that but they're just they're grateful for what they do have not for yeah. what they don't so paul it's been an absolute pleasure to um uh, talk to you today and you share a bit about your story and get to know you a bit better so with the church safety guys on facebook how can people get hold of you if they want to learn more about your your work well um there's church safety and security on facebook um there's churchsafetyguys.com um, we may have a podcast coming later this year which is pretty exciting and then um i have a page on facebook uh it's paul buckner church safety guys and then uh, james mcgarvey has one and uh, i'm looking forward to i think you may be interviewing him soon as well i'm looking here to forward to hearing about his journey. And uh, I guess if I could add an anecdote to to that last thing with your permission. Um, it, is this about you being a genius now? No, <laughs> but, it, but it is about trying to walk through the doors that God gives us. I come from, I come from Podunk Nowhere, USA, you know, in, in this corner of Missouri, but God is, God is opening doors and, and God doesn't, and, and I, I it's, um, uh, church security through uh, prevention, the podcast, uh, Daniel says this, you know, Daniel, and he says that, you know, God doesn't call the equipped, he, he equips the called. And I come from very humble, a very humble background, and I strive to stay humble. I'm a very confident person, but I, I'm like, Lord, I humble myself because he's opening all these doors. And I, I feel a little bit like Peter. I'm coming in, wiping my hands off from being a fisherman, and I'm being asked to print, uh, to, to preach at Pentecost. Um, 
God is opening a lot of doors and I'm really excited about what the future looks like. Maybe we visit in a year and, and where God has taken this. So I, I'm really stoked about what God's got going on for the church safety guys. Paul, it's been a pleasure to talk to you and you can now listen to the, the outro of your voice. <laughs> Thanks for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for the Who I Became podcast. If you are enjoying the discussions between Simon and his guests, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review, as well as share with your friends on social media. Once again, thank you for joining the Who I Became podcast.